Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. Happy New Year. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney. With me, as always, is Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. How did you do this week? This week was an okay week. Happy to see the end of the year. And I am eager to report that there's going to be the glorious return of Masterpiece Theater. Gone too long. By popular demand, we will have the glorious return. Everything about Swag is glorious. I don't know if people understand this. Just by listening to this podcast, you are rendered at least 52% more glorious. And by extension, we, as the podcast you're listening to, become more glorious in your refracted glory. It's what's known as a virtuous cycle. Look it up. It's in economics. It's all coming in roses, Mark. Yeah, yeah. It's glory upon glory. So, this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our feature game which is Oak by Wim Hoosens. So, Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, we got to play Undaunted Stalingrad, designed by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson, put out by Offspray Games, and it's just more of the same awesomeness. Except now there's they've tacked on a legacy and or campaign element I don't know, to the end. Tacked on, I don't think, is the appropriate word. True, true, true. Well, we just say tacked on so often when we talk about these things. That, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> it just came <laughs> naturally. So this is not, Fair enough. True enough. Not tacked on. Interesting, we only played one and we sort of just went over because I hadn't played Undaunted for a while. We said we'll just do a trial game to get back into it. We don't want any ramifications going forward. In case of this is what Walker happening. declared as he while he was losing, and I definitely seized on that after the scenario was over, and he won. It's true. It's true. <laughs> you were like very hesitant. Oh, I don't know. Let's just see. And then it's like, oh yeah, yeah. We'll definitely have to redo this now. More or less. That, that's about fair. <laughs> 
I have to say, the reason why I say it's not tacked on, this is actually a detriment in my eyes. You cannot just pick a scenario and start playing. This is not the kind of system where they've gone to the same degree of effort that, say, Oathsworn has. That says, look, this is our campaign, this is our story, this is the progression system. But if you want to skip all that and play scenario number eight, here's how you go when you play scenario number eight. Undaunted Stalingrad doesn't work that way. And the box is filled to the brim of alternate tiles... Uh, this is not your first Undaunted product, I don't think. This, I think, is definitely the kind of thing you can start with Normandy. And if you really like Normandy and you want to play a consistent campaign, then go for it. I am hopeful that we are going to be able to knock this campaign out, not quickly because I think it would be onerous, but in the same way that we were able to knock out the campaign of My City. Relatively quick playing two-player game of a solid core mechanism, set of mechanisms that we adore. And, of course, immediately upon playing another Undaunted game, you were immediately reminded about how much you love the system. I I, I didn't need reminding because I played Undaunted slightly more recently. Uh, utterly marvelous system, and I'm curious to see how the campaign system pans out, because so far we don't know. Yeah, well, a little bit. And it doesn't look as though there's onerous paperwork, as far as we know. No, there is not. That's a good point. And it looks like there's just, like, uh, upgrading some cards, doing some small... Or downgrading some cards. Or, or we could downgrade some. Well, anyway... Undaunted system is a great little sort of deck builder. You're starting off with a scenario-based number of troops, and then they have some reserves because if they take wounds, you're losing those cards that activate those units. So you're either losing them out of your hand, out of your discard, out of your deck, and then you have to repurchase them using the officers. The officers let you draw more cards, let you recruit more cards, all sorts of interesting things going on. Quick, no worries about line of sights, just range. Uh, the cover you get in the train, roll some D10s, everything about it, I adore. And there are a couple of minor rules differences that separate Stalingrad out from previous products. The scale is the same as Normandy, which is to say armor works the same way. You don't have that system you had in North Africa, which I thought was clever, but occasionally felt a little bit shaky, whereby you had specific soldiers sitting at various positions of specific vehicles. Here it's very simple. You can either affect armor or you can't. You have different two different firepower ratings, essentially. Furthermore, there's an excellent evolution of the cover system. Every terrain has potentially two cover values. One is against attacks from afar. One is against attacks in the same square. So, for example, in the first scenario of Stalingrad, no spoilers, it revolves around Pavlov's house, which coincidentally is another game designed by David Thompson, and Pavlov's house has a cover of three against attacks at a distance, but only a cover value of one against adjacent attacks. And so it is very much in the interest of people trying to dislodge people from Pavlov's house to close the close the distance. Anyhow, unsurprisingly, this is more work by David Thompson and Trevor Benjamin. I knew I was going to love it before I signed on, and I'm very, very glad to have tried it. But now, as I say, I'm very curious to see if we can get at least... Prob I would... I. I'd want to see at least half a dozen games into the system just to see how it evolves. And with luck, if uh, player counts and schedules work out that way, we might well be able to do that. That is Undaunted Stalingrad. I get to play another game of Time of Empires. Time of Empires is the real-time Civ game that we talked about last week by David Simiat and Pierre Voy and by, put out by Pearl Games. And this is one of those things where I'm really glad we have these editorial meetings. I remember very distinctly an editorial meeting we had shortly after the start of the podcast, and I said to Walker, so should I finish reading all of the rulebook before I'm able to review a game? And he said... Maybe try to play it at least once before you say anything about it. And I complained and I whined and no, but sure enough, here we are. And so the third playing of Time of Empires really revealed something, I think, borderline unforgivable. And that is 
the way the wonders work is really quite clever overall. You participate in an area majority for the wonders, and if you win, that will allow you to score two points per criteria on the wonder card, as opposed to one point for the criteria for everybody else who's present on the wonder. Most of the time, and in fact all the time for the other wonders, the scoring criterion keys off of something not to do with wonders. So, for example, the Great Wall of China. If you, quote-unquote, win the Great Wall of China, you get two points for every terrain hex you occupy. If you're in second or third, fourth place in the Great Wall of China, you get one point per hex you occupy. So you have to commit resources there, and it keys off of something else you're doing. Furthermore, if you know that someone's got a lock for Great Wall of China and you want to undermine their score, well, you can take territory from them. Anyway, there are trade-offs. There are choices to be made off of that. We encountered a wonder, an age two wonder, which was just points for tokens on wonders. So I'm like, let me get this straight. You're not only does it feed into wonders focusing on wonders. There's no way for anyone to take this from me. All I do is just pile on a whole bunch of resources onto wonders. It was made even worse because the situation, the, the overall context of the game was in age one, you commit to a certain kind of building that you would are incentivized to build. I just happened to commit to the building just arbitrarily because I wanted to try something new to the building that lets you put out more pieces onto Wonders. And so the moment it came out, I knew the game was going to go off the rails. And it did. Because I had more ability to fight for the Wonders and I had no interest, aside from an arbitrary point cap, which was still very, very high, to just pour more resources onto this Wonder. It was a self, it was just, it was a, a virtuous cycle for me point-wise, but it led to a deleterious effect on the game state. So, in, fortunately though, there are three other Wonders Wonders available for every age. So this wonder is gone. I don't house rule games very easy, very often or very easily, and I'm not the kind of person who goes over and is like, eh, this one's too strong, this one's the dominant strategy. I don't do that stuff very, very often. This one, though, I'll happy to be making exception. Walker, go ahead and call me a sweaty tryhard now. No, it's, I, 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 you know, the, the designer's mark had a vision. We, now we just need to get the leader that allows you not to remove your scholars from wonders. You get to keep them from age to age. <laughs> you get to keep them forever. And then it will be a closed circuit and it will be fantastic. <laughs> exactly. You will be able to ignore 90% of the game and triple everyone else's score. Because that's more or less what happened. It was desperately unsatisfying for everybody at the table. So this wonder is gone. I'm binning it completely. Other than that, the game was still a blast. So I'm having a great time with the system. But what it does do overall is it shakes my confidence in the overall universe of card effects. Previously, after having played two times, my stance was, this is a very great system. I really like all the tech effects that I've seen. I've liked all the leader effects. I've liked all the wonder effects. Can't wait to see more. And I, But now I'm at the stage of, well, I'd like to see the rest because I want to see if any of the rest of them are so desperately unsatisfying. I think I've seen most of the techs, not necessarily personally, but on the table. And I think I've seen most of the leaders, but now I'm just... And I'm just a little cautious. Afraid. Yeah, my, my hackles are up, whatever those are. I didn't know that I'd have hackles, but I have them, and they're up. So hopefully you don't have to get them removed. Man, that's an ordeal. That sounds painful. So that was Time of Empires. I'm still happy to keep playing. I'm just a little bit cautious now. You know I got to play Innovation, the Face Slap Edition. <laughs> it is Time Barons, and it has a lot of tropes of innovation, sort of like moving through the ages and, and manipulating resources to either get more cards or go through the ages. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tableau builder where there's a bunch of different decks based on different technological eras. Innovation's got 10 and Time Barons only got four, but nonetheless, a lot of it is about... Maintaining hand advantage, maintaining tableau advantage, maintaining tech advantage, and stuff like that. Which is fine, because for what it is, you don't want 
you know, 10 eras. Yeah. Right? It doesn't need that level of, of complication. Absolutely not. Because it because you have to go into it knowing that it's a take that, you know, attack the other player right on the first round, back and forth. Yep. And I, I really enjoyed it. I happily play it again. Was it only two player only? Well, or, isn't it, or is that the one that had like the team play variants? There, okay, so <laughs> that's the thing. So not unlike innovation, it seems obviously best at two. Because in this case, at least in the case of Time Burns, because of how openly hostile it is, it's as fighty as a game of Magic the Gathering or any any derivative type of that. Because very much like running out of life points causes you to lose in Magic if you run out of followers in Time Barons, that's it, you're done. And so you either knock out your opponent or you just have more followers at the end of the game. Either way, it's all about doing damage to your opponent. There are multiplayer rules. There are team-based rules for multiple people. I would be willing to try them. And the reason why I'd be willing to try them is because I have faith in John Perry. This is a co-design between John Perry and Derek Yu. This is a bit of a problem for designers like John Perry or indeed like David Thompson. Whenever they do a co-design, I'm, I have to remind myself to credit their co-designers because I see the through line in my head as being of just this one person's towering genius. That's not necessarily fair or accurate. And it certainly gives short trip to their co-designers. Anyway, I love John Perry. I love his work. And Derek Yu is his co-designer here. He doesn't have any other accredited designs, but I do not wish to take any credit away from Derek Yu. So there's a little bit of uh, similarity between the two games that we just talked about, and it's all based around the civilians because, you know, you need to manage where they are and how you're going to use them. The followers, the yeah. The followers, because as soon as you lose them all in Time Barons, then you're out of the game. And a lot of the cards that you need to uh, activate require a certain amount of people. So has some very interesting strategy. If you can just pick off one, it really limits the, the other player what, uh, what they can do. And you're deciding whether you want to play cards or up your, your population so you don't get knocked out. Same time in Time of Empires, you have the set number of civilian tokens and you're spreading them around the different areas. So it's sort of like this management, you know, win-loss type thing. It's true. I enjoy both. What I particularly enjoyed about Time Barons, in addition to all the aspects you've already highlighted, is the action pressure is huge. You really feel like you're being pulled in a bunch of different directions. Typically, playing cards costs multiple actions, and most of them are really cool. Upgrading your tech level is very important, but also is very expensive in terms of actions. And frequently, your population isn't where you want it to be, and it takes actions to shift them around, and that sometimes feels like a bit of a waste. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. We played it. We played two games back to back. This is a review copy we received from the designer. It went through several different editions. It was published in a second edition by WizKids in 2017, and that's the edition that we played. It comes with an expansion deck. There's an entire other deck for us to try, which I'm looking forward to trying. The second WizKids edition is now out of print, but you can still get the game on GameCrafter. And it, it joins the ranks of other excellent John Perry games. His recent spots... Airland and Sea, Spies, Lies, and Supplies, and, of course, the most excellent scapegoat. So I, I, I'm perpetually looking forward to John Perry's future output. So far, he's had a consistent string of hits. The one outlier in terms of board game ratings has been Time Barons, but I found it delightful. For a head-to-head, slap-you-in-the-face card game, I think it gets a lot right, and the pacing is there, the tension of card play is there. I'm a big fan. That's Time Barons by John Perry and Derek Yu, published by WizKids. This Saturday, we streamed a couple of party games, namely Cat in the Box and Green Team Wins. Cat in the Box, designed by Munayuki Yokouchi. Thank you. Published by Hobby Japan or Bezier Games here in North America. 
And it is a very interesting trick-taking game where all of the cards are blank. Well, numbered, but black, so you don't know what suit they are. And as you play them, you tell the other players what the suit is. You just get to declare what suit it is. Yes. Exactly. But you have to mark it off on the board. So if someone plays, says, uh, this is the red one, then that is the red one, and no other card could be the red one. Of course not. Well, how could it be? You know, it's a normal deck of cards. It can only have one red one. <laughs> and so that's the kind of gameplay. You sort of have to figure out what people have played, and there's lots of chances for uh, paradoxes to happen, as in you just can't play any cards in your hand because they, that any combination has already Because Sidewinder is earlier than you in play order in Big League, do you consistently? Over and over again. Each and every time? It's true. I've watched it happen, and I, I giggled a little bit. <laughs> and I, I thought it was a fantastic game. I, I really enjoyed it. I found it more confusing than anything else. I found it intriguing. I had no conception about how to play well. I, I'm i normally not particularly good at trick takers, but I can usually fumble my way through. And Cat in the Box introduced enough novel complications that it just upended any heuristics that I had about good play, much less proper play, which is a, a topic unto itself with trick taking games. Very clever intriguing. I'd want to try it with fewer players because I I would hope that the level of control kind of uh, increases. We ended every round with a paradox. Every round somebody was trapped not being able to play a given card. And I would hope that that would go down and you might actually see a round played to completion with fewer players. I don't know. Maybe it's part of the design is to for it to, you don't know when the round's going to end. You could well be correct. I just found it very difficult to get a handle on what was proceeding. I was intrigued. I, I happily play again. But it was a, a better form of, of obtuseness than, you know, a, a lot of the German trick-taking games of the late 90s slash turn of the century. So, you know, Mu or even Vashtekt, which I like, but is definitely a lot more complicated, much less things like Cosmic Idex. Uh, those were complicated from a perspective of how on earth is any of this working, as opposed to how do I play well. So Cat in the Box, at least, has a level of simplicity that is often... Uh, associated with the Japanese school of, of card game design, but I just had no clue about how to play well. Even when I was playing uh, Ghosts of Christmas, which similarly upended a lot of my intuitions about trick-taking, I had a better handle on what was going on uh, while simultaneously finding intriguing. This is not to say that I think that Ghosts of Christmas is the superior design. I'm just trying to contextualize my confusion or my inability to make any notion. And I don't think I was alone in feeling confused. I definitely got the impression that, that Huey didn't really know what was going on. And other than uh, big-leaking me constantly, I, I didn't get the strong impression that Sidewinder had a good sense of what was going on. Uh, Warm Boy and you seem to have a certain degree of confidence, but maybe that was all just bluster. That's part of trick-taking. <laughs> Well, be. I shouldn't have admitted my incompetence. I should have just, just pretended I knew what was going on exactly. and just faked it all the way through. Oh, now I understand. So, some other cool things that are going on red is always Trump, and you cannot lead with red until someone plays it as an offsuit. And that's the other interesting part. Uh, like other trick taking games where you must follow suit, you don't necessarily have to follow suit, but if you don't, then you lose the ability to play that suit because, you know, you were supposed to follow it. And obviously you don't have any of that color. Yes, yeah, so you so effectively get to declare yourself void at any time, including right. at the very beginning. So it has these little markers. So you mark off, well, I can't play yellow anymore. And off you go. It, it does a lot of very interesting things. I can certainly see why it's getting a lot of acclaim. I, for one, think that very much like Ghost of Christmas, it, it does a very good job of upending a lot of whatever preconceptions you might have or set patterns of play with respect to trick-taking games. 
And despite the fact that it's much more linear than Ghosts of Christmas, again, I just, ugh. So, I, I wasn't... I wasn't completely alienated by my bafflement. Let me just put it that way. So I'd, I'd happily play it again. It also doesn't last too long, even with five. But again, I, I think I'd prefer to try it with three or four next time. Agreed. The second one was Green Team Wins, designed by Nathan Nathan Thornton and put out by 20th Century Games. 25th Century Games. 25th Century Games. Oh, they upgraded. Look at that. Um, <laughs> It's a game from the future, Walker. So there are three. This is sort of like a... I want to be on the cool kids team. Yes. Right? Whoever has, you don't need the right answers. You just need the answers that is the majority at the table. Let me, let me tell you something that I've learned very the hard way over the course of my life. And I continue to learn on a regular basis. Nobody likes the smart aleck who thinks they're always right. Do you know what people like? The yes man. People like the one who's agreeable. The one who says, Ooh, nice idea. That's the one people want to be around. The pushover that just caves to the majority, the sheeple. Whatever you say, Walker. Gotcha. So yes, so there's three different types of questions. They're like either like a 50-50 or a multiple choice. But uh, the one we liked the most was a blank something or or something blank. And then everyone flips over their answers and whoever has whatever the majority of the answer is the correct answer. The plurality of the answer is is the winner. Is the, is the correct answer. And more importantly, they get to join the green team. <laughs> That's right. And if you're on the green team and you had the right answer, then you got two points. And if you you transferred from the orange team to the green team, you only got one. So it's a game of trying to stay on the green team, trying to keep getting the quote-unquote right answer, and trying to get the most points after 15 rounds. So you get five of each of these three different types of questions. They get shuffled up and you deal them out. And very seldom... Do I ever hear Mark to ask to play the same game twice? It's true. And off we went. We played it twice in a row. I think it was a hit on the whole table. We both loved it, and it seemed everyone else did as well. It was great. I I don't know if this is the intent of the design, but fixing it in terms of green team versus orange team encourages just the right level of light role-playing slash smack talk that I think party games should have. It's absolutely joyous. And it plays on that notion of in-group, out-group. It immediately sends you right back to high school and about how nobody liked you. Or at least that's what it did for me. I don't know about the rest of y'all. And I really enjoyed it. I, In terms of the very top-tier party games, I think it falls because I couldn't help but notice both times we were playing that roughly around the halfway mark, seven or eight questions in, you look around and you can tell that some people are just out of the running. Period. Flat. Full stop. Don't have a chance. Very much like high school. And... I didn't mind, but the very top tier party game, they're a little bit more competitive. You know, you, you might feel like you're in it at the very end. That's why I think the, the cooperative versions like just one, as an example, have a, a slightly better traction in terms of a, a calling the competitive experience is somewhat of a misnomer because it's a cooperative design. You get some of the same joys in just one, but just the overall theming and character and in-group, out-group psychology involved in Green Team Wins was utterly delightful, and I would happily play at any opportunity. And a lot of the questions were very clever as well. That is absolutely true. We had some very intense discussions about fruit salad. It's true. Very strong opinions. And I learned that there are people on Earth that like cantaloupe. I didn't know that any of them existed. Mark, grown-ups like cantaloupe. <laughs> Infants like bananas? Is that... Just like grown-ups drink coffee. Okay, look, setting the coffee aside, I will grant you my distaste <laughs> of coffee is born of adolescence, but I believe that the green team did declare that cantaloupe was gross, and therefore, cantaloupe is gross. Yes, we'd rather eat mushy bananas... Walker. ...than delicious... Sorry, who crisp- wins, Walker? 
Who wins? Cantaloupe. Who wins? Who wins, the, Walker? The gross green team wins. I think you haven't internalized the spirit of the game. Green team says it, therefore, that is the way. That is truth. That is the absolute law of the universe. That is Green Team Wins by Nathan Thornton. A delight. It was. Played a game of One Deck Galaxy. One Deck Galaxy was designed and published by my friend Chris Cheslick at Asmati Games, full disclosure. Although I did pay for my copy. Clearly, we're not as good friends as I thought we were. And One Deck Galaxy is a kind of evolution of his previous design, One Deck Dungeon, which has undergone several revisions in terms of expansions and additional content over the years. Kind of a similar dice placement mechanic, but it's been blown up in terms of options because just to give a top-level overview, in One Deck deck Dungeon, what you would do is you would have a card which would instruct you as to the conditions of placing dice. When you're playing One Deck Galaxy, you usually have about four cards that will give you conditions into which placing dice, and you can make progress towards any of the four cards at whatever rate you want. Try to knock one card out quickly and then move on, or you can slowly work towards all four of them at once, as opposed to One Deck Dungeon, which is reveal a card, take it, reveal a card, take it, reveal a card, take it. That's not to say that there weren't lots of choices involved in One Deck Dungeon, but as a consequence, One Deck Galaxy feels a lot heavier than One Deck Dungeon is. And that, I think, can be a good or bad thing, depending on what you're looking for. I found it... Uh, a very interesting change of pace. I was not anticipating this additional level of grit. Once I accepted that my strategic horizons were much, much broader than they had been in One Deck Deck Dungeon, I was able to appreciate it on those terms. I had to prioritize. I had to decide what things I was going to push for at a much more laser-focused level, lest I get confused and scattered and not really make any progress. Because, as per usual in games like this, you have a list of tasks that you must accomplish in order to progress your victory conditions. At the start of the game, they seem insurmountable, but gradually you acquire more techs and more abilities and you get to roll more dice and you have better means of facing the challenges that confront you. Another major difference in One Deck Galaxy, and this I found very much appreciated, is in One Deck Dungeon you would end up with a large number of skills which you could activate every round. And sometimes it was a little bit difficult to remember which ones you'd activated and they they were all a little bit weak as a general rule. In One Deck Galaxy, by and large, the abilities are much, much stronger, but you can only activate a limited number of them each turn. And that part I found much more satisfying as a consequence, particularly because I would then one of the uh, one of the hallmarks of the One Deck Dungeon series, as well as One Deck Galaxy, is that all the cards are multi-use. Whenever you claim a card, it can let you more roll, roll more dice, use it as the ability, gain it as science or ships. In this particular case, not so much with the science or ships in the dungeon. You know, you don't really do it that way. And adding a new tech ability in One Deck Galaxy was a serious, serious uh, uh, temptation, even when a lot of the other aspects of the card might have predominated, especially when compared to One Deck Dungeon. So I've only played the once, had a great time of it. It is as modular as One Deck Dungeon, so there are new races to play where there were classes in Dungeon. There are new adversaries to confront. There are actually new sets of special abilities, so it's not just a class. You have a race and a class, effectively, in the context of One Deck Galaxy. And it all takes place in the original sci-fi universe of 1001 Odysseys, which was kickstarted, I think, in 1985 and will probably be available possibly within the scope of my lifetime. I kid, I kid. From a place of love. So that was One Deck Galaxy by my personal friend Chris Cheslick. Had a great time of it. Lovely solo experience. I still haven't played either One Deck Dungeon or One Deck Galaxy as two-player affairs. These are optional things. I've always had the suspicion back in my mind that they're, you know, sort of tacked on, sort of not the key design experience. That having been said, given the additional strategic horizons of One Deck Galaxy, I would be more willing to try it two-player than I would be to try One Deck Dungeon two-player. 
In both cases, it's a, co- it's a co-op two-player game? Yes. All right. I went back to, with Huey and Dewey and Louie, to G.I. Joe, the deck-building game, because they came out with a new expansion, Cold Snap. This is designed by T.C. Petty III and put out by Renegade Game Studios. And what this does is it just adds more sprawl, which is unfortunate because it's now taking up almost the entire table. <laughs> they just keep adding these like little mini decks. Now you can do this, and now you can add that, and now you can... So now on top of the giant command center that you can build, now you can tow giant guns along with your vehicles, Mark. So now it's not only you're hopping in a vehicle, now you're like towing along like anti-aircraft guns or batteries or giant cannons. Not only that, there's this sort of cold snap, you know, much like the title. Hey-o. You are covering up the story mission. So normally a story mission would be out in play and you can see what was coming up. Now they have these cards that covered up and you have to deal with them before you finish the current story mission. You could finish the current story mission, but if you do, the cold snap gets discarded and the next card has, you know, negative modifiers if you did or did not, you know, kill the the cold snap first. More cards, more stuff. That part I liked. uh, Also introduced the dread knocks. So it was like an expert mode. You could do it. In all the other expansions, or in this one, you could just play with them normally without it, but we just added the card as well because they don't come out as often. We did a little uh, bad, funny business with the compilation deck because it said, you know, remove some. So when you added the cold snap ones, you'd, you'd get them more often. But when we said, okay, well, let's just take out that second, all the second expansion cards. And so, you know, we'll just take those out and then we'll add these. Ah. Other ones. Unfortunately, the second expansion ones are the only thing that brings out the ninjas, which... <laughs> Which, <laughs> See no more. I, I, no, I, mean, I think I we just, get the picture. I just mean, what I mean is just that the command center that you can build, the only thing that sort of sabotages it are the ninjas. So we just sort of had a free <laughs> command center that we... This is my life. Would, this is my job right here. This is this is what this is what as a grown man I'm paid to do. Hey, All right, man, it's G.I. Joe the deck building game. What do you want from me? <laughs> no, it's just I, I realize this This is basically the, the, the story of our podcast. You're like, well, look. Uh, we, we we took this shortcut, but unfortunately we undermined the design ambit of the game because we got rid of the ninjas, the ninjas who are specifically designed to undermine your command center. And that is why our gameplay of G.I. Joe, Cold Snap, the third expansion, was not strictly rigorous from an overall perspective. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Can yes, you so. not at least grant me the ability to perceive the, stu- the, the absurdity <laughs> we, of this situation? We can. We can. Yeah, we, it won't be canon anymore. <laughs> Well, it has to disallow that whole gameplay, and it shall be scrubbed. <laughs> Purge from it from the records. Exactly. Yes, so. very very foolishly, after the fact, I pointed out that if you wanted to really trick out your copy of G.I. Joe, the deck-building game, you would clearly need to get an action figure for each of the Joes and Cobras represented there, and, of course, all the vehicles that are represented in the game, much like I have in my copy of Warfighter, where I purchased some Mega Bloks Call of Duty figures, and as a result, I get to make little action figures of my soldiers that are kitted out as per the weapons that I purchased for them, and I get to advance along the map with the little action figures and make yes. little pew-pew sounds. Pew-pew. That's that, may be, that may be all of Walker's money forever. That's right. <laughs> no new games next year. Just, just re- G.I. Joe. Reviews of the, of the newest G.I. Joe figures. <laughs> That's G.I. Joe the deck-building game. Expansion, Cold Snap. Walker very kindly showed me Title Blades Banner Festival. This is by J.B.E. Howell and Michael Mihalsik of Druid City Games, the same team that put out Title Blades Heroes of the Reef, which was the sprawling, theme-heavy Saturday morning cartoon show dice allocation game prompting Walker at the start of every game to say, Welcome to Naviri. I'll point out that Banner Festival didn't have anywhere near the same thematic coherence. 
There's something about merchants riding sea-doos and putting out wares and betting on a race, but you're racing the race. You're not really betting at all. Ugh. And a moving gate. Yeah, the gate move. Thematically, it doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. But there seems to be an inverse correlation between thematic coherence and quality of game design as far as I'm concerned, because I thought Banner Festival was, compared to Heroes of the Reef, a much more satisfying game experience. Mechanically more rigorous and a heck of a lot shorter, and so it was very pleasant from that perspective. However, uh, it has been portrayed not even by Walker, but a lot of other people, including the publishers, as a trick-taking game, and I would like to issue a minor pushback on that, not merely to be pedantic, when I'm just being pedantic, I think I can own to it. This is actually a blind bidding game because the cards are played face down simultaneously by everybody. This makes a huge difference. How about this? It's a blind bidding game mm. where the currency is manipulated by a trick-taking system. 100%. That is exactly correct. The trick-taking element is in how the bids are resolved. But since uh, some people might want to argue that trick-taking is a form of bid anyway, but we'll set that to one side. So there's a strict Trump hierarchy that varies based on where this movable gate happens to be. That part I thought was great. Being able to decide whether you wanted to push now or wait until your hand was slightly better. Being able to make guesses about where other people are going to move it versus where you're going to put it yourself. And that further interacts with where your little CDs are going to go. That part was really, really exceptional. And broadly speaking, you either want to come in first or last. Being in the middle is okay, and sometimes that's exactly what you want to do, but by and large, the big ticket items are coming in first and last in these sort of uh, little tricks. And in, it, some in some circumstances, like if your CDU is one space in, you know, in front of the gate, you don't certainly. necessarily want to win because you get to move one space. Certainly, but generally speaking, even yes. in that context, it would be better to lose than to come in in the middle. Just I'm so. just saying that the middle yes. rewards, they're nice. And it is nice that they have managed to soften the sting of losing a blind bid in that way. And I think that's one of the reasons why they did it. There are lots of reasons why blind bidding has fallen out of favor. It used to be the case that in Euros of about 20 years ago, blind bidding sometimes was almost all the game, or sometimes it was a, a minor feature in lots and lots and lots of other uh, resource management Euros. You don't see a whole lot of blind bidding anymore for lots of excellent reasons. It feels very arbitrary and unsatisfying when you pull out of your most powerful card only to discover you get nothing out of it because somebody else pulled the most powerful card or even the random faction pulled out the most powerful card or vice versa. And there were a number of situations like that where someone played an incredibly low card, but randomly someone else had the very lowest card. Not enough of the deck is dealt out to really pull all the sting out of that. If the entire deck were dealt out every round, and you knew that all the all cards were in the hands of players, this may have just been an artifact of the fact that we were playing with three, then that would be fine. Don't play the second lowest card of the game if you haven't seen the lowest card of the game come out, right? Know that you can get underbid. Here it felt a little bit more random, but still fine. Given the length of the game, given the depth of decision-making, which was satisfying but not particularly deep, and given the uh, in influx of information from the face-up card played by the dummy player, so it was our three face-down cards and the face-up card of the dummy player, that was just enough context to, to make you know, approaching educated guesses. And so it didn't feel completely arbitrary. It just sometimes felt arbitrary, but that was okay. I thought it was a breezy experience. It was, it was very nice. Has some of the art 
and the style that I associate with title blades, but not enough. I think they could have had a little bit more. It, it wasn't quite as colorful or character driven or full of personality as the previous title blades was. And I don't really see the reason for that. They could have put a lot more art on the cards or tried to make the theme a little bit more co- coherent or both. But all told, I was pleasantly surprised by Banner Festival. Uh, but uh, you have to know what you're getting into. This is this is a blind bidding game, and it feels an awful lot like a blind bidding game. Yeah, very easy to set up, very simple to teach. And like you said, it plays very quickly, and it's got, I don't know, it's caught my attention. I think I'll keep it for a little while longer. Title Blades, Banner Festival. I was also disappointed that the fruit is now less squishy. It is. I was promised squishy. squishy fruit, and it was only mildly squishy fruit. All right, we also played... Tiny Turbo Cars, designed by Halmar Hak, Alessandro Manuini, Jonathan Panada, Laura Severino, Giuliani Tamagni, and probably at least five other people. Who's to say? Who's to say? Put out by Horrible Guild, same people who did King's Dilemma. And this is a fantastic little racing game. It, it tackles many of the problems, i.e. game length, pacing, has these very intricate controllers like robo rally style where you're plant you're programming your move uh reaching for sort of the tokens say i finished first or you went last pushes the game along very easy to read sort of uh obstacles in your way they all have a nice you know standard symbols on the map so you know what's going to happen i like a lot about it it does have that sort of heads down i really think you should pass the controller and have other people uh, do your program because mm. has same thing I think in Robo Rally in these types of games where you think you've programmed it a certain way and right. you just move your car. You have an idea about what your your plan has done, exactly. But often you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, just so. So it's best, and then you're like, oh wait, and then yeah, and you're done. So the level of chaos is much much lower than there is in Robo Rally for two reasons. Number one, the boards are less dense. Even I think the most dense courses don't have as many, you know, robots running around. And number two, this is a car racing game, and so everyone is going forward for the most part. With the exception of one backwards movement, everyone's pretty much going forward, so you don't have to worry about facing, for example, which is a huge deal. You know, you might be going diagonally when you thought you were going straight, but it's not like you're facing the wrong way and literally going backwards when you didn't know what was going on. You'll always be facing the right way. That, that That's definitely a comfort. Furthermore, the real-time element allows there to be a little bit more texture, and that pleased me greatly. Here's why. The fundamental planning mechanism is based on those little slide puzzles. You know, you, you those four-by-four four grids where one tile is absent and all you can do is slide one piece to the side or another piece up and down. And you make the pretty pictures. And you make the pretty pictures. And then after you're done sliding things around, you're going to run the two middle rows of your slidey-slidey and tiny turbo cars. And you might be thinking... Mark, I hear you talk about puzzles and spatial puzzles and talk about how you're no good at them and they, they, you find them painful. You're exactly right. But there's a real-time element. And as you might have heard me talk about in terms of real-time games, I enjoy the added pressure that real-time games go. And real-time games force you to engage in heuristics. When does Mark engage in heuristics for spatial puzzles? Almost immediately. And so I didn't, you know, just look at my controller, say I was done, and then call it a day, trusting myself to fake. No, no, no. I would I would look at it and say, wait, no, I can't do that first, or I can't do that second. I need to get that out the way. Uh, is this better? Probably. Okay, move on. <laughs> Next problem. I didn't try to plot out my turn in its entirety, and I didn't have to because I was always faster. Because I was always the fastest, I therefore had the the virtue of having to worry about fewer details like battery management 
and uh, obstacles in the way. So, because if I'm in the middle of the pack, and if I can consistently maintain myself at least in the middle of the pack, I have fewer cars to worry about, and therefore my path is relatively clean. Walker and Huey, on the other hand, were making much better plans, and they went exactly where they wanted to almost all the time, but they weren't able to get there fast enough because they were taking their time actually planning. Anyway, suffice to say, it allowed for two different playstyles, broadly speaking. If it forced me into a, you know, you must plan things properly, I, I, I'd be driven crazy. I wouldn't be able to handle it. I wouldn't enjoy it. And it definitely wouldn't be my game. As it is, I'm able to appreciate the charm. I'm able to appreciate the, the excellent components, the beautiful pieces everywhere, the, the funny art, uh, the, the very chunky wooden pieces. I was very surprised by the overkill on that. Much appreciated. And because of the real-time element, I was able to at least get some traction there by having my crappy plans at least come out first, as opposed to the much, much better plans that came out later. So as a consequence, I, I enjoyed Tiny Turbo Cars. I'm surprised by how much I did, and I would happily play it again. And you're right. It, it doesn't fall into the same tracks of a lot of uh, same traps, I should say, of a lot of other racing games. It was over very, very quickly. And there was a beautiful built-in catch-up mechanism that meant that no one was ever out of the race. There were big swings in terms of who was in, in, in the lead. And I was very pleased by that. Normally, the game has to be overlong to allow that kind of catch-up. So, you know, the two problems tend to feed into each other. So I, I felt that it avoided both of those traps very, very well. It has a giant deck of different racers that you can pick from and very much has that wacky racers sort of feel where you have yeah the game doesn't take itself seriously at yeah, all it's very and they all and the powers aren't overpowering or but they're very interesting and novel and i really enjoy the game thank you for showing it to me walker i, I found it delightful i don't know how much staying power it would have because again at, at the core of it there is still a spatial puzzle determining a programming challenge. I was just delighted by the fact that I was able to get as much traction as I was. No pun intended. Maybe yeah, a little bit of a pun and intended. And I don't think the teaching is is overly complicated. So I think I really feel it's one of those games where you play once or twice a year. Like you said, I think playing it over and over again. You're right. You'd, yeah, but once or twice a year, very novel, very interesting, fast, easy to teach. Yeah. Tiny Turbo Cars. Those are the games we played last week. And now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? 
Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, Reiner Knizia, maybe you've heard of him. One of his classic negotiation games is called Quo Vadis. It was originally published by many different publishers of German games, a three-to-five-player negotiation game. It is going to be republished by Bitewing Games. And because it is a republished game, it's going to have to have anthropomorphic animals. And now it is called Zoowatis. Do you see what they did there, Walker? Yeah, it was Quo Vadis. Now it's got animals, and it's it's it's, it's so clever. I I can barely contain something myself. something Roman Republic something yeah. something animal headed thing something something. Well, it's gonna have a new map for six to seven players, and I'm very much looking forward to it because I I'm ashamed to admit I commented on this in an episode of Pledge of Indifference. I have never played Quoatus by the actual rules. I was introduced to Quoatus by a group in Boston who confidently asserted that one of the tracks in Quoatus was underpowered, so they incentivized it with an additional point token. And every time they set it up, I'd be like, could, could we not play it by the rules that Reiner Knizia did? And I'm like, no, 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 this way is way better. Despite the fact that every time we played, whoever pursued that track that they changed won. So I'm looking forward to play by the rules as published. Fine, fine people. I don't mean to throw them under the bus, but I always wanted to play Quoatus straight, and I never got the opportunity. Looking forward to it. Another reprint from a slightly older game now, in 1974, a, a, a game called Kingmaker was published, and it was republished by Avalon Hill in their famous bookcase series. This is a multiplayer conflict game, normally about the War of the Roses, but not really. And it is one of the classics of the genre, and I say classic in the sense that the same way that, you know, Titan and Diplomacy are classics. Real long, real old, and they feel real old. But I've never played it. I've always been vaguely curious about it. It is going to be reprinted this year from Gibson's. Gibson's is the same company, for what it's worth, that put out a reprint of Civilization not too long ago, which was sadly, mostly, as far as I'm concerned, a failed effort. Not as good as the original Avalon Hill. But one virtue of the new edition from Gibson's is that they're going to have many versions of uh, uh, available. You can play the original version, but you can also play a newer streamlined version that is meant to be, you know, less of a game from 1974. Not that that necessarily means that it's bad. They should put a little spinner in it so tell you which version you're going to play. <laughs> sure. So, new Kingmaker in 2023 from Gibson's Publishing. I did play the original. Way, did you now? Way, way back. Yeah. I, I couldn't tell you much about it. I remember I had these little sort of fortification castle things that you put on the map and lot, lot, lots of things about successors and keeping the princes alive. Yes, and... yes. You cared very much about your lineage, yes. Yes, but that's the most. It's like third, yeah, yeah, long. Anyway, my one piece of news, 
it's the end of the year, so not much happening until the next year. But this Actually, one, it's the beginning of the year, Walker. But this is very exciting. Because you see, the, the other year ended, and now it's the new one. It's so it's exciting the... right here. Okay. We have a survey. <laughs> so you can check your Facebook. It'll uh, help us, you know, think about what we're going to do in this next following year. Lots of different information on it. Lots of information for us. So if you have the time or the inclination, please fill out the survey. Yes, we'd appreciate a great deal. We've already had a bunch of excellent feedback, and we're going to keep the poll open for another week or so. There is a link to it in addition to Facebook and Twitter in the episode notes, so we would appreciate a great deal. And for those who have already filled it out, thank you very much. It means a lot to us. Finally, for me, there's a Kickstarter for a game called War Surge. Now, full disclosure, I have not played War Surge. It is a tabletop miniatures game, but it War Surge has a number of interesting design parameters. Now, like many independent miniatures games, it is miniature agnostic. You can bring any kind of miniature you want to the table. But unlike a lot of other systems, they really mean that. So it's kind of a kind of a hero theme. So you can have fantasy warriors, sorcerers, and elves and crap right next to your tanks, right next to your 40k army, whatever, what have you. But they really want you to be able to design whatever kind of unit you want. There was one uh, playtest report that I heard about where someone does, uh, put a tank battalion against the guy from One Punch Man. Not a guy like the guy from One Punch Man, the guy from One Punch Man. Now, of course, at this point, you can start quibbling about what stats you would apply to such a thing, but that's just it. If you have access to the app, it's heavily app-dependent for unit design and nothing else. You can play the game without the app, that's fine, but the unit design formula is built into the app, and as a consequence, you can build whatever you want. But this is the first time they are kickstarting a physical rulebook. Up to this point, the rulebooks have only been available online in scattered rules documents that I did not find very user-friendly, and that is one of the reasons why I've never played the game. But War Surge is now going to have a rulebook and a compendium with a whole bunch of pre-generated units. How many? 20 factions to start, and more being released through stretch <laughs> goals. The awesome sort of battles you could have, because remember they the all the French little Smurf figures you can buy, and you can buy <laughs> you can buy you can buy Care Bear figures at the same sure. scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can have this massive. Yeah, yeah. Anything you want, yeah. literally anything you want, can be can, can be done with the system. And so I have pledged. I'm going to be checking out the the rules. I am in favor of pledging for independent miniatures games, especially when what they are selling are PDFs. Uh, this is an Australian group, so I'm not going to be buying the physical books. The shipping alone would would kill me. And it's more expensive than your average PDF Kickstarter. But this system has been... There's a lot of work into the system, suffice to say. And I'm curious. So if you two are curious, you can check out War Surge on all Kickstarter. Sorts of silly stuff. You do that. Like, one person makes this giant Godzilla. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone else does like tanks and troops. Uh, they, they've probably... Uh, honestly, the they've probably done something like that already. Oh, I'm sure. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to our feature review, which is Oak by Game Brewer. Oak was designed by Wim Hussens. I apologize in the past for having tried to pronounce it in a German a German way. My understanding is that it is to be pronounced in a Dutch way, so Wim Hussens. Uh, this is his first credited design other than a self-published, which is to say unpublished design, something-something Thulu gathering cultists. I, I did peruse the rules and a bunch of images, and you can see where some things are pulled from that for Oak. Really? But yeah, it has a whole tree the tree system, which we're going to talk about later and the way the resources work and stuff. Like I said, I didn't go in depth on the rules, but at a, at a quick glance, 
there is definitely some things pulled and manipulated from that for Druid. For I see. Oak. Well, on that topic, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Oak? Well, in Oak, you get to play Druid Dress Up, and <laughs> and you also get to brew magical potions, and you get to go to different parts of the woods. But I guess Druids like to stand on different types of they're rocks. Very so- they're very solitary people, oh, as a rule. Very different types of rocks. Very Unless they have a things. bird, in which case they can go scare people away. Ah, I see how it goes. And then they like to climb trees. Okay, sure, yeah. They, they go up in trees. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, like yeah. to have uh, solstice parties where they get drunk and eat a lot Big of Big rangers, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, they have to build their own homes out of stone. I'm sure they must be very strong. This is what one does in, in Oak. <laughs> Oak is a worker placement game for one to four players. And it is probably one of my favorite Euros of the year. I think it's telling that Walker went to the bother of reading rules of a prior unpublished and uh, impossible to find game because uh, on the strength of Oak, uh, Wim Hoosens is very much on my radar. Whatever he puts out next, I am going to try. That is, that is, that is for certain. The core elements of the gameplay is that for the most part, if you're going to be placing a druid on the central board, if you're going to be placing a worker, it has to be married to a card. There are some circumstances in which you can play a card without a druid, and some circumstances where you can place a druid without a card, but at its core, especially at the beginning, there's roughly a one-to-one correlation. So as a consequence, managing your supply of cards, managing your supply of druids, and manage- managing is can be as or more important than managing your other resources. I commented before that this reminded me very pleasantly of some of the aspects of Anachrony, where in Anachrony you have your workforce, but only some of them can go into the big stompy mechs. The analogy here would be that the cards are kind of like the mechs. I'd rather they be mechs. I, maybe I'll call the cards mechs. I don't know. But that additional level of nuance in turn, on top of the solid established worker placement formula, I very much appreciate. Yeah, and the setup's great because you're going to have a different game every time because there's these main potions that you're going to brew three of them and they all come from their own associated sort of pile so you're going to have a different one every game on top of the default one on top of the default which is boring but very effective it's just for straight points yes and then all of the player boards are completely different so you have different ways you can manipulate it that way and then you also have the standard there's a monster deck and an artifact deck and in the order in which those come out might heavily modify how a game plays. Before I played the game for the first time, I was worried about the potion aspect of Oak was going to make it feel like, yet again, another Order Fulfillment Euro game, right? I've got nothing against Order Fulfillment, I just think it's a little bit too dominant in the current design sphere. I think that the European Masters pretty much had it covered about 10 years ago-ish, and so the fact that almost every Euro game has it uh, kind of is getting a little bit tiresome, but... The way that it works is really fascinating. So generally speaking, the potion in the in category three is mostly one that you're going to do once as a rule. It's going to be very expensive and it's going to give you some massive power that will probably be the kind of thing you can only do once. For example, and this reminds me a little bit of Capital Lux in that there are all these components that are only going to be in the game if that module is in play. So for example... There is one potion that allows you to put a little extension board, allowing you to hold more artifacts over the course of, of the game. And in Oak, if you brew that third potion, you get the extension board and you get to take an artifact of your choice. You can brew that potion again, but you've already gotten some of the powers associated with it. And so, uh, as a consequence, it doesn't feel like you're constantly just churning through this potion brewing just for more points. You can get points for brewing potion, but that's not really the key driver of the game. 
I want to talk about the druids now. Let's talk about those. Because there's lots of ways that you need to manipulate them. Not only do you need them to do actions, but if you go on to spaces where there's already a druid, then you have to put one under the tree, as, you know, I guess they could say. But only the ones that you put on actions are going to come back to you. So you got Under the tree is a euphemism for buried in the roots of the tree, right? Just so. Yeah. And so you got to, you know, manipulate your actions about getting more druids into your play area and having ones to go out on the actions. But there's also a limit on how many places you have back on your personal board when you recall them all where they can go so you have to start building you know uh, shrines for them to live in and and all sorts of interesting things like that and you get to upgrade them with fancy hats and or 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 guitars or potion bags and it really matters you know which druid goes where with what action and all of these things even that there's certain uh action spots that only uh fancy druids can go to <laughs> bedazzled druids bedazzled druids all of these things leads to such an in-depth decision space. Again, not entirely unlike Anachrony. They're not very similar games in a lot of ways, but one of the joys of Anachrony is managing your workforce and managing your available supply of mechs to support that workforce. Similarly, in Oak, above and beyond the cards that are often paired with the Druids, there's having the appropriate number, knowing when to retire a Druid permanently. I'm much too conservative. I was like, well, that's losing a worker. Well, there are ways to get the workers back. But... There's a hard cap on how many workers you can have at any given time, which, generally speaking, only goes up, but only when you spend the necessary resources to get the extra spaces. But on the other hand, certain kinds of bedazzled druids have to go in much more expensive spaces, or, in some cases, provide their own spaces. All of this interplays to mean that if you're clever, and druids will probably be coming in and coming out over the course of the game, you'll be able to look at the board and look at the state of your own personal board and realize what kind of druids you need. Some players will get by just fine without any bedazzled druids whatsoever. Other players, and usually this is a function of their own player boards, in Oak, in order to get ahead, will probably want at least one, possibly as soon as possible. As soon as possible, maybe round three. Or maybe not. It's it's a delightful aspect uh, layered on top of the the worker, play, uh, the worker spaces. And I, it's one of the most dynamic and interesting parts of Oak, as far as I'm concerned. Especially in the early turns, depending on who, who gets to go first. You know, you're upgrading your druids first. And because you don't want to waste those actions getting those normal druids You back. can't afford to waste anything. Yeah, so you're so you're taking, I don't want to say suboptimal, but you're taking, it's like, oh, well, they get to upgrade their druids this turn, so I'll take these other actions that don't, you know, cost yep. as much. Love that. I love, on top of all this, there are these limiters on your player board where uh, you can only play either one monster or one uh, druid house at the beginning, and then you have to pay resources to increase these limiters, get you more monsters, get you more hovels, and this sort of like constant drain on your resources I find is very interesting as well. Yes, and I think it's worth noting that in both the Kickstarter versions and in the retail versions, the manner in which you upgrade your druids is so toyetic and delightful. The druids are already very impressively sculpted, silk-screened wooden pieces. And when you upgrade them, you add a plastic piece on top of them that Walker wasn't joking when we called this uh, druid dress-up. You literally put three falcons that sit on top of a druid staff to indicate that this is the, the talon master, as they call it. The arch druid has a badass cowl with, with antlers on that Walker refuses to let me touch because we never get the right potion that brings in the arch druid. He keeps talking to me like he's my father, saying, you'll really appreciate it when you earn it, son. It's true. <laughs> well, yeah, well, when I played solo, I put that hat on the first thing I did. Damn it. And I loved it. 
You mentioned the I resources. Have resources too, yes. So resources, and they they do two things very interesting here, where uh, there's hardly zero end game scoring, and there's not this ridiculous income phase that's yes. going to go up and down. At the end of every round, you get three of each of the three resources. There's, that's more or less it. That's more or less. There's rune stones, there's mistletoe, and there's feathers. Those are the three resources you're going to use. There is that also correlates to the three different sort of areas of action. There's the you know the three stones in feather, three and three, and then on your moot cards, like we're talking about. There's you have to play a card with the druid. There are those three. There are those three stones and the associated area that they're going to go to. And to go to those stones, it's going to cost you a certain amount of resources. I will say that initially, I'll get back to the resources in just a second, but initially the moot cards seem overwhelming because there's not a strong thematic connection between what the three stones in each area will go. There's no notion of like feathery types of resources or stony types of resources that you can purchase with them. So if it's the first turn of the game, you're looking at these cards and it gets clear so quickly because broadly speaking there's a very nice correlation between the more expensive actions and the more lucrative ones you know there's the bigger class of toys your artifacts your druid upgrades your card upgrades and then there are your lesser class like going up the tree getting an extra couple workers because the logic there is if you're getting more workers you have the room for it so you've already done the heavy lifting things like that and so the iconography is relatively consistent it's relatively easy you you might have to look up what some of the special powers do but that's all right and the the picture solidifies itself very quickly and as far as the resources go i found it liberating to not worry about building an engine you're not really building an engine here in oak yeah you can fiddle around on the margins maybe get a couple extra points here and there based on the creatures that come up walker keeps calling them monsters but that's only because i think he's suspicious of people that are different from us i on the other hand have a big heart and am empathetic and call them creatures as the game intended and there's this weird element the one element of the game of oak that i find a little bit difficult to internalize is when people get to benefit from the festival and who doesn't. Sometimes it's a private festival, sometimes it's a public festival. And honestly, a lot of the game focuses around on manipulating that, but I don't think to much end. We're talking about a very negligible amount of resources at the end of the system. It's the one part I'd probably shave out, all told. I think it was because that first game we had, there was a potion that gave you a private solstice, whereas normally... Everyone gets a solstice as long as your victory point marker is not ahead of the solstice marker. I respect that it was trying to be a catch-up mechanism. I respect also that it was trying to have some element of you don't want to score too many points too quickly. But I felt that it was so inconsequential that it felt like the one element in a relatively detail-oriented game. This is a medium-heavy worker placement game. It was the one element that didn't feel like it belonged as in the same way as the other True, it's definitely did. a step too far. You, you could take that right out, and I don't think the game would... would falter in any way if it were points if it were more resources if the thresholds were recalibrated a little bit maybe i don't know but generally speaking it gives a small number of resources to people to people who are already up the tracks but you go up the tracks for your own purposes anyway should we talk about those tracks i just want to let me finish off these action cards because i haven't had time to ah I'm Always on your schedule, Walker. I haven't Never had, on mine. I had a time to study these said moot cards, action cards, but they've done such a great job of sort of scattering the the 
actions you want to do. You're not going to be able to do all of the things you want to do because yeah. you need to play this card to do that. But that card also has this other thing you want to do. So it's this real... The triage yeah. is real, yeah. Yeah, I really enjoy that part. And if you go to the trouble of buying more cards, it really does expand your options considerably. It's not just that the new cards you get are less expensive to play and tend to give you more benefits. Well, what that means is suddenly before you can only place once on that group of actions. Now you can place twice and you have more options available. So it really is, uh, again, part of that workforce management that's so central to Oak that I love so much. So I'm glad I went back to the cards because this dovetails into the tree because not only do you get to play Fair the enough. card, on the very bottom of these action cards, you can, instead of placing the druid, you can use the bottom of the card, which also is sort of, well, if I, I want to use the, I need, I really need to go up the green part of the tree because there's three different colors that you're going to go up, which are also associated with the, you know, feather, runestone, mistletoe. I really need to go up the green, but oh, look at these actions on my green card. I, oh, anyway, so you're going up this tree. And like we said, it feeds into the solstice, depending on where you are on the three different tracks. You're going to get a little bit of income. But they are, I don't want to say end game scoring. They're like other gamed end game scoring. Yes. But as soon as you get to the top, you score it immediately, which is a very interesting sort of timing mechanism. It's like, okay, I want to max this out. But at the end of a complete round, that if someone scored it, then it's locked out. So you got to watch where other people are going. You got to try to get those different, whatever, either it's most monsters, most, you know, hovels, most fancy leaders, points for points, which is unfortunate. I wish they had something else there. Hate yeah. That. It's, I have a love hate relationship with the tree and Oak. I think that it is my second least favorite element after the, the whole, the, the whole thing about the solstice festivals. It is core to being competitive at Oak. You have to look at the tree and have a notion about which ones you're going to hit. And again, this is the kind of thing that becomes relatively clear rounds two or three-ish. You'll get a sense of what you're going after. It's like, okay, I'm drowning in artifacts. I I guess I want to race up the track that rewards me for artifacts at the end. Or I'm drowning in creatures. Best to go there. And that's fine. So it, it's a core part of the game. It's not ancillary. It occupies a huge element right in the center of the board. It's very visually clear that it's important. But I... I really don't like the fact that I don't feel the different arms are balanced. It is real hard to get to, say, 12 points for creatures. In order to do that, you need to have maxed out your board capacity for creatures and gotten the specific advanced druid that gives you an extra space for creatures and gotten all of those creatures to begin with, and then you max out that track and you get 12 points. And then there's the track, the, the, the arm of the track that says you get a point for every five point you already have, which means the moment you've cracked 60, it is going to be at least as good as that Herculean effort you did before. I always, each and every time I play Oak, think it's obvious that you should go up that track. I could be wrong. This could be groupthink. I could be just operating in my little ignorant corner of the universe. It just seems wildly disproportionately more strong than all the other aspects of the game. And as a consequence, it's the biggest knock against Oak's replayability. The way creatures come in, the different potions, the different pressures of different people's placement, every game feels very different in those terms. But I do know that every game, I'm a race up that track. Yep. So there's, like we said, there's six different ones because there's three branches. And then each of those branches branch off again. And yes. So I, I like the fact that you could get in trouble with someone blocking it. You're like you're working towards a, 
a certain goal and someone might potentially block it off. Or at the very least, might encourage you to go there sooner than you might have otherwise gone for fear of losing it. Yeah, the pressure is real, yeah. But like I said, there's some that are just no-brainers, like the you get points for the fancy druids, and of course you're going to have all the fancy druids. (laughs) So I don't tend to get all the... I love bedazzling my druids, but I tend to get one or two as a rule. I, I tend to have difficulty housing them, or I have bigger fish to fry. And the tree also locks in three of your druids, because once you start up the track, three of your druids are out of the game, so less sort of play. And then I want to go back to the player boards, because each player board has a special action or even multiple actions that only you get to do, and it sort of points you in a direction, which is kind of handy for your first game. It's like you're going to be the potion guy, or you're going to be the guy that gets a lot of resources, and maybe buy the uh, the men here stones, give you a lot of points. And the artifacts are interesting as well. There's these artifacts that you can pick up, and there's these dials that go on the side, and you get immediate points. I like this game because points, points, points. Every time you you do something, you immediately get them. Yeah, pretty much every action will give you points. More or less. That's an oversimplification. There are lots that don't. Upgrading your druids doesn't give you points. Getting more druids doesn't give you points. But you build a house, you get points. You get a creature, you get points. You get an artifact, you get points. Yeah, but it's not a Babylonian thing where you're where it takes away from the, you know, you have to stop and keep pushing. It oh yeah. It's always simple. Time. Two, three or four yeah, points. Exactly. Usually every action, more cool. or less every action. There you go. It, it surprisingly doesn't feel like point salad to me. I don't know why on the face of it. It, 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 it is very point salad but in practice, it doesn't run afoul of my same concerns. It doesn't I'm, feel I'm, that I'm, way. Yeah. I'm hard pressed to explain why, to be frank. And then the artifacts are usually an action space and then you turn it and then you're going to lose those points and potentially you're going to lose more points than it gave you. But, the actions are usually pretty good. Well, you can activate most artifacts twice and still be net ahead. If you activate it the third time, then you're seriously in the red, and then the artifact goes away. It's a constant tension, and again, it interacts with my favorite element, namely the workforce management, because by and large, artifact spaces are spaces you can send your workers and not need a card. So you can end up in a situation where you have more cards than than druids, in which case you'll find yourself racing up the tree much, much more easily. You could find yourself in a position where you have more workers than you have cards, in which case you would better have board or artifact spaces to send them. And that tension and that trade-off is very interesting. It is also the case that near the end of the game, you might end up running out of druids altogether because of the, at the beginning of the game, you've only got three druids on your board. You've got six in the middle of the tree. You're like, I will never run out. But when you pass, that's when you potentially get resources. These all-important potions, which can be very, very significant, by and large, the way you get resources is when you pass. But in order to get a resource, you need to have an available druid. Even by the mid-game, say you've upgraded a couple druids, say you've acquired a couple more, say you've gone up a couple tree tracks, you might only have two, maybe one druid left in the middle, and now you're in trouble. And now you might start thinking, maybe I do want to retire a druid so I get more resources when I pass from now on. Maybe I have acquired more uh, more druids than I'm able to successfully put to work. It, But... The system is sufficiently flexible that with a little bit of effort and a little bit of forethought, you can accommodate for those previous errors. The push and pull of the workforce management is great in Oak. Basically, I feel like a, like a druidic HR director, and I'm not complaining. And I like Because there are, there are circumstances or times that I have felt that I want to start passing early. Because once you start passing, the druids that are left under the tree now start, there's this pool of potion ingredients, and you start collecting them. And it goes around, and someone might pass, and when it gets back to you, you get to pass again, and a druid pops down and you get more ingredients for these potions. So sometimes when there's one, although that, that sort of leads into another problem. So remember the last two games we played, it was seemed to be a very one 
potion ingredient was sort of yes. right across the whole board. So one particular ingredient was, you know, hard to get. So that's the sort of case you want to pass early, even though you had some actions you could have done because you really want that particular ingredient. I think that, though, was largely a case of groupthink of focusing more on toys than the comparatively less sexy but important point generation. Because at that point, we should have just been happy to take whatever garbage trash wouldn't feed into the fancy potions, but you can always just trade in sets of different different ingredients to get raw points when you uh, brew a portion. And we should have just been focusing, I think, in hindsight, more on that during the game, as opposed to the one time you do it at the end of the game for free. Yep. I was going to say, that's the end game scoring. That's the entirety of the end game scoring. That's it. One creature card that you might want to cash in. Other than that, you get to brew one score score point potion. If you have enough resources, then whoever's in the lead wins. Yeah. Hardly any end game scoring. Not a whole lot of mid-round upkeep. There's a little bit, but much less than than most other Euros of this weight. And so as a certain gentleman scholar I know would say, the flow is very real. Things go along, you're constantly wrestling with with the core choices of the game rather than dealing with upkeep. Your income is relatively certain. That allows you to plan ahead without engaging in complicated mental arithmetic. I have two feathers this round. Oh, I guess if I do nothing with my feathers next round, I'll have five. I guess that's not six, which is the key threshold for a lot of expensive actions. Go ahead and plan accordingly. And so, honestly... I find that Oak gets out of your way in a lot, uh, in, in many of the ways that other medium heavy euros don't. It is not a huge sandboxy type of experience, but the core push and pull of managing your workforce in the face of wanting to score these points, I find very, very engaging. The play by play variety is significant. And my only serious complaint is that I wish that there had been more variety in terms of the tree because the tracks finally here are central graphically and in terms of gameplay, but they are the one feature that is present in every game in the exact same way. I don't think the branches are balanced well against each other, and I feel it hurts the replay value a little bit. Yeah, you could, I guess, with more plays, you might see some of these things and try to close tracks off before people get, I'm not sure. Oh, no, I mean, it's not like it's a no-brainer in the sense of getting there. You have to work for it, and you probably want to get there before anybody else does. Absolutely. But it's just the the other tracks, as an example, I'm like, am I going to have a lot of creatures this game, or am I going to have a lot of hovels? I don't know. It will always be worth it to go down that track. I just mean you could see someone sort of pushing towards a certain thing and then just rush up it and score suboptimal points, i.e. stopping them from scoring a whole bunch. Possibly. maybe, Maybe that would... What I don't like is the fact that there are a lot of things to look up. There are like 50 different creatures with all different abilities, which are very interesting to play with. But every time they come up, you have to sort of consult the book, just to make sure you get the timing of that certain ability, right? There are all these different artifacts that we talked about. There are all the different abilities of the leaders, all the different upgraded action cards, lots of things to look at. I don't know. I, th- I think I agree with you that you have to look up a lot of the monsters, a lot of the creatures, rather, and a lot of the artifacts. But I think you might be exaggerating. The upgraded moot cards, for example, have the same actions as the normal moot cards, just tend to be in slightly different configuration and cheaper. A lot of the creatures come in sets. Like one creature helps you go up one track, another creature helps you go up another track. They have the same iconography, just with the different resources indicated. So that once you've seen one, you don't have to look up the other ones. A lot of the artifacts, as an example, just let you do one of the standard actions on the board that you've already had to explain over the course of the game, so you don't need to look that up. So yeah, there there is some iconography to internalize, but I don't think it's quite as bad as all that, especially again, by the standards of most middleweight or medium heavy Euro games. It's got a great player ref reference. Like you said, at the end of the round, it's very minimal. The first time you go through the end of round stuff, it'll be a little, a little bit, but 
you'll see on the quick ref card, you'll see what the iconography means. And then the following ones will be instant, go down the line and you're ready for the next round. And as a final note from me, uh, the solo mode is a breeze to execute and offers you a relatively good feeling of occupying the board and blocking you. I find it much too easy, though, for what it's worth. I find it a pushover in terms of a challenge, but it was very simple to execute. And a, a solo game of Oak was very quick, 30 to 45 minutes. And I found it enjoyable. Yeah, I think it's got a little bit of barrier to entry for the first teach. But other than that, once you after the first round, like you've already said, it, it clicks immediately and you're off to a, a very enjoyable game. Highly recommended. I found Oak very enjoyable. I'm looking forward to coming back to it. And I never knew that I wanted to play Druid Dress Up so badly. So that's going to do it for this week for So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very much for joining us. You can find our contact information on sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us and we'll get back to you if we can. We appreciate your deciding to spend the time with us. And we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. waited dear listeners and now once again in honor of our patron his grace the reverend dr dr vincent duke of diesel esquire obe we resurrect with glory swag presents masterpiece theater this week i'm glad we brought it back that music is very nice music it's true it's so sophisticated it's sophisticated af walker that's so true we're gonna get all sophisticated up in your face this week we're going to talk about ryan johnson's glass onion walker your thoughts that would hurt your mouth a lot (laughs) crunchy I know onions are crunchy, but glass we maintained was... the sophistication for all of five seconds. Walker, what did you think of the movie? I really enjoyed it. It's sort of a playoff of the you know old sort of Clue movie style with a little bit of you know upgraded sort of well, but Clue itself, tropes. Clue itself was kind of playing on a you know Miss Marple slash yes Hercule Poirot kind of thing. And I haven't seen the first sort of in this in this in this genre. It was called the the sword the knives blade, out knives out. Yeah, which is interesting. I would highly rec- I preferred Glass Onion to Knives Out. I would highly recommend you watch Knives Out first because it establishes Benoit Blanc in a uh, an appropriate setting, and then I think some of the ways they play with his character in Glass Onion will be more satisfying narratively because he's already been shown as as a comparatively. Uh, I really, in his context, don't want to use the term straight, but relative <laughs> in a relatively more straightforward representation of, of, of the Southern gentleman detective. Yeah, I don't think I would have enjoyed it without that character. So if... if oh, he, he makes the movie, yeah. So yeah, it's the yeah. same actor, same character in the first movie, then I'm, yes. I'm, more, I'm definitely going to go. Well, Ryan, Dan- Ryan Johnson and Daniel Craig have said that they are willing to make as many Knives Out movies <laughs> as the other is willing to do. But they both said the moment the other one's out, they're out. Ryan Johnson has been one of my favorite filmmakers for over 15 years. He's a he's a genius. Have you seen Brick? No. Brick is wonderful. Uh, he's done Brick. He's done The Brothers Bloom and Looper, which I think two of his weaker movies, but still eminently enjoyable. He did the incredibly controversial middle Star Wars movie of the most recent trilogy. Uh, but I actually thought it was interesting. He was trying to do something cool. And there were elements of it that I thoroughly enjoy. And he's written and directed both of the Knives Out movies. He's a genius filmmaker. And I, I recommend all of his films. 
And I definitely think that Knives Out and Glass Onion are just, they're, they're just so pleasant and enjoyable and, and fun and witty and clever. There's I, not much negative to say about them. So it all revolves around this entrepreneur, say, had, came up uh, with all self-important these. Self-important jackass. Self-important jackass. Who may or up... may not be Elon Musk. Yeah, very, very similar <laughs> to Elon musk and he sort of established this little click at the beginning of his career. And ever since then, he's been inviting them out to all these like weird <laughs> outings and or And the cast, is am- the cast is amazing. Catherine Hahn is in a starring role. I think she needs to be in more starring roles. Uh, Leslie Odom Jr., known from Hamilton as Aaron Burr. He was, I, I had a great deal of difficulty recognizing him because he has hair in this movie as opposed to his, his characteristic bald Hamiltonian self. And of course, Janelle Monet, who strolls in about half a dozen desperately stylish outfits. She's just too stylish for this world. It's amazing. I love the cast. You probably cared more about. I was going to say Batista? Yeah. <sighs> Batista. You know what? Especially in the context of this podcast, I'll say it. Low rent Vin Diesel. No, 100%. I'll stand by that. No, I Vin think... Diesel would be better in any Batista role. I think Vin Diesel should have been both his character in Guardians of the Galaxy and Batista's role in Guardians of the Galaxy. There you go. I said it. Disagree. Uh, he has a very limited range in Guardians of the Galaxy. with no... Unlike Vin Diesel, which, who has lots of range. Which, which uh, I think leads to the character in Guardians of the Galaxy. Just, you know, sort of. We're not talking about Marvel movies anymore in this, on this segment. You know, no. But I think he really comes to his his own in this he's movie. He's fine. He's nowhere near as good as anybody else in the cast. He's okay. He doesn't. Oh job. no, I'm not saying he, yeah, yeah. he outshines anybody. But okay. for him, what he's done, he so was well far, cast. He was well I cast. Think, I think he did a great job yes. in this. Movie. He was, yeah, he was fine. No, he he was well cast in the movie, and he was fine. I'm just saying, I don't leave the movie feeling like. I need to see more movies with Dave Batista in it. But Catherine Hahn and Leslie Odom Jr. and Janelle Monet, I absolutely feel like they'd need to be in more movies. And uh, they did a great job of making you feel as though you could figure out what was going on. Unfortunately, at the end, I, I felt there was no way to yeah. to pull together what was going on. Like That's I, very much part of the I genre. Did, I just You're, finished yeah. Watch Wednesday, and they did a great job. And uh, well, actually, that's I, let's not spoil two things. <laughs> Um, oh, Walker, what are you doing? <laughs> so, yeah, I felt as though, you know, yeah, it was unfortunate that well, in, in your, there was nothing that in you In your classic Agatha Christie-style mystery, you're not expected to be able to piece together what happened. There's always the scene where the master detective lays it all out, right? And um, I don't know, maybe that's just me. I, I'm just the idiot going along for the, ro- the ride. It's like, ooh, what are you going to do next, Monsieur Blanc? Like, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I thought that dinner scene was amazing, right? So yeah. he invites them out to this it's island. so good. And, and, he's, and he's, you know, spent... You know, months putting together this. Don't, you know, no, don't spoil it. It's too good a reveal. All right, it's all right, too all right. good a reveal. You have to watch it. I thought that's what we did here, though. We spoiled everything. No, to make it worse. No, no. no all right. <laughs> I try not to look. If you, it's your show too. If you want to spoil things, go ahead. No, but no. I think it would be better not to spoil things. But overall, it was a very enjoyable movie, and I'm glad I watched it. Yeah, it's available on Netflix now. It was in theaters for a month, but now it's uh, streaming on Netflix. The, the original Knives Out is also streaming on Netflix. If you can watch anything by Ryan Johnson, he tends to write his own movies, but not not invariably. Highly recommend it. Brick is is brilliant. Everybody should go watch Brick. It's a fabulous movie starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Wonderful film. But honestly, the the I would classify these as like people pleasers. These are just crowd pleasing movies that are witty and clever, as opposed to you know deep or anything like that. And that's fine. Fabulous holiday fair. I watched it with me mom. Very nice. Glass onion.
Thank you for joining us on Masterpiece Theater. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.